This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're very fortunate to be joined by a uh, highly regarded scholar, popular writer, and really, I think, someone who's doing some of the most interesting investigations of history and society in the United States today. Uh, This is Jill Lepore. Uh, Jill and I have overlapped, I think, a few times in different places, but it's really uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to her today. Jill is the David Woods Kemper Class of 41 Professor of American History at Harvard University. She's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. I'm sure many of you have read and seen many of her articles there. And she's the author of many, many uh, prize-winning and best-selling books. I can't name them all. I'm just going to name my four favorite. The Name of War, King Philip's War and the Origins of American Identity, which was Jill's first book and, and I think her dissertation originally. New York Burning, Liberty, Slavery, and Conspiracy in 18th Century Manhattan, a book that taught me a lot about the city I grew up in. The Secret History of Wonder Woman, which I I think is a real hoot uh, to read. Uh, And then uh, These Truths, A History of the United States, which is uh, uh, Professor Lepore's most recent book and the book we'll be talking a bit about today. Um, Welcome to our podcast, Jill. Hey, thanks so much, Jeremy. Fun to be here. Before we turn to our discussion with uh, Jill Lepore, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's poem. What's your title of your poem today? An American History. Let's hear it. In the moments when they tossed the tea off the arrogant boats and watched the harbor turn brown and golden in the dawn light, they were not really saying no as much as they were saying listen. And in the excruciating dullness of the hallowed halls where they felt out in the still summer air, the future they never imagined to be more than ten, maybe twenty years, they didn't see the moment as a prophecy or the product of some divinity. They were people. These were their ideals. If you want to escape history, be a seagull. If you want to make history, be a porcupine. In these moments, we are porcupines. We build ourselves in armor that sprouts from our own skin. And then again, one morning, we wake up seagulls and we float out to sea on the drifting breeze and circle the great blue nothingness so we don't have to look back, so we can fly to the paradise on the other side. We have made our own history, and we have tried to escape it. But there is only one truth to history, and it is simply that there is no going back. There is no starting over again at the beginning. Even the dead get gravestones, and the living walk solemnly past, and place rocks in neat lines along the top, so they can feel below that the world in all its vain existence is still there and that gravity is still pulling us towards and away from each other at the same time. May we all have the courage to accept this fact, so we can say with confidence when the time comes, I have made my own history, and, like a true American, I have done my utmost to outlive it. I love the punchline, Zachary. Um, What is your poem about? 
My poem is really about the ways in which we as Americans uh, have this very... Um, not overblown, but very uh, grandiose sense of our own history. But at the same time, we remain so ignorant of so many aspects of it. Um, and, and it's almost intentional, uh, the way that we we view our history. Um, but there is also this this overwhelming sense of optimism that I think what is, is what makes uh, the United States uh, so attractive or at least endearing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jill, what I love about your work, and particularly your most recent book, uh, These Truths, is... Um, like Zachary's poem, I mean, you, you meditate on many of the difficult parts of our history. Slavery is at the center of your of your history, but yet it is optimistic. You you are you 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 seem to believe that we can find a history and a way of telling that history that will bring us all together. Can can you say more about that? <laughs> I think that's a forced optimism. Um, thank you for the lovely poem, Zachary. I was really stirred by it, and I love the seagull and the. Porcupine Thank in particular. You. I um I have buried many a dead porcupine. <laughs> I have dogs who are porcupine hunters, and this ends badly for all, one and all. <laughs> so I have an intimate acquaintance with a life cycle of a porcupine. <laughs> Very good. Once wrote about a great deal about porcupines. Um so it kind of means something to me. Also, porcupines are just such a funny American phenomenon. <laughs> yes. Um so in answer, but to answer your question. Jeremy, I um, I had been very uninterested in writing this book, right? Taking on the task of trying to write a synthetic account of all of American history. And I was asked to do it for a college edition. And my publisher, Norton, has a big college, you know, the best college division. And they wanted to have a new single author U.S. history book. And I just thought that sounded like really the worst possible writing assignment. <laughs> and I'm, I would say I am chiefly a writer. I'm incidentally a historian. and But I would write about anything and often do. I don't always write history. And, um, and, and then I felt this real burden uh, about that refusal that it really bothered me that I didn't think there was a good single author trade book in particular that, you know, the textbooks are usually teams of writers and they don't often really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and they're generally a misery to read. So I wanted to try to write this actual, you know, a book, not a textbook and knew though that this hadn't really been attempted for generations my generation, your, you know, our generation, like the, since the 1960s, right? The idea of writing a single author, synthetic, sweeping narrative history of the United States was utterly untenable. And for a long time, it just would have been wholly irresponsible, right? So starting in the 1960s, when women and people of color entered the academy, got PhDs, became professors, went into the archives, did amazing work, wrote articles and monographs, and it pretty much exploded the scholarship of American history. And what they were interested in was conflict among groups, you know, excavating the history of the group to which they belonged, often, most cases, like founding women's history and black history, Chicano history, um, and wonderfully excavating archival sources and telling stories that had never been told before, but very much invested in, in that redemptive work, right? Uh, just redeeming from the obscurity of history, of at least within academic history. Um, I don't mean in a, uh, in, in a more moral sense. But that vision for the urgency and importance of that work was 
in, involved the complete dismissal of the possibility of anyone doing anything sweeping or synthetic, right? You couldn't really care about indigenous history and pretend to be writing a national history. Those two things were just opposed to one another, right? Like indigenous peoples in the Americas are their own nations. Like how could you include them? It would just be an act itself of colonization to put them in a national history. So they're just really profound intellectual and, and also deep political objections to that very idea of the project. And when I was coming up and getting trained, like that's what everybody was trained with. But that meanwhile, out there in the world, outside of academic institutions and K through eight and you know, high school classrooms, people have to teach national history. It's required by state legislatures. And so curricular material is, you know, was being developed and made and is increasingly, as school budgets were plummeting, school teachers were using kind of the cheapest thing that was out there, which is going to just tend to be really kooky, triumphalist, non-academic, in fact, specifically anti-intellectual, right? right? So, so eventually I, this, this wore me down and I realized in spite of, on the one hand, scholars thinking this is an untenable and indefensible intellectual project, um, and the, and, and yeah, so in spite, in spite of that, the, the need that seemed to be a felt need in, for the general public to have a meaningful new interpretation that attempted, you know, there's a lot of original work in there, but it's, it's obviously really, I'm synthesizing the work of generations of incredible of scholars who've done this work. Like, I, I read a lot of books to write this book, you know. <laughs> um, it seemed to me it was worth a try um, to say, this is actually work that academic historians mm-hmm. ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it's not meant to be the last word. It's meant to, an idea I had in doing it was to attempt to rekindle a tradition whereby at a certain kind of point in your writing life as an academic historian, one might take on the obligation to attempt to write a sweeping synthesis of the nation's past. Um, so that's what I tried to do. Do do I think that it itself brings people together or is a testament to my personal optimism? I think it can easily be read that way because that was probably intended on my part to kind of, it has a... There, there are a number of principled calls to civic responsibility um, within the text itself. So I, I don't mean to gainsay my own words, mm-hmm. but just to say, uh, even in the years since I wrote that book, things have gotten a lot messier. Right. But you do say early on, actually two or three times in, in a really wonderful introduction, which is unique for a grand narrative because you, you, you struggle with the idea of a grand narrative in your introduction. But you do say a few times, I have tried to cross a divide. Uh, and and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what you, what you think that is, because many people would say that uh, often with different politics from you and different politics from me, they would say, you know, we need to, a certain kind of traditional history because it's what brings us together. Mm-hmm. You seem to make the argument here that at least there's a possibility that a different kind of history, a non-traditional history, that's still attentive to Ben Franklin, you write a lot about him in here, right, could bring us together. You can cross a divide. So what do you mean by that? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, our account of the nation's past is as polarized as our politics are. And that's an untenable situation for a a national people, right? There needs to be some sense of of a shared past um, to be able to, because that's the foundation with which one looks ahead, right? And um, maybe this, these things seem kind of commonplace and obvious now, because we're in the middle of these crazy 
school schoolroom history wars right. with you can't teach this and you must teach that. Um, but I don't think that was as obvious even to most people just a few years ago because the stakes weren't it weren't completely clear. But for a long time now, certainly since well, for a very long time, but certainly since let's say the 1990s, the stories that. Americans tell about the nation's past have been diverging, right? So there's there's this this very um, very conservative traditional account that is that really dates to the 1950s and is a very whitewashed version of American history. And then there's a quite radical in which every, which America has never done any wrong, right? Um, and then there's a, another uh, to the far left an account. We might associate this with sort of Howard Zinn mm-hmm. in the seventies, and, and maybe with sixteen nineteen project now, right. right? Where the story of American history is is a, is a litany of atrocity, right? American and in, in the matter of foreign policy, America's never done anything good. Um, maybe you could associate the right with. Do you remember when Newt Gingrich had? Um, to renew American civilization. He had this like video cassette lecture series. You know, I have tried to forget that. I yeah, cannot right? forget it. It was so bad. <laughs> so Gingrich had a PhD in history yes. and he fashioned himself very much, especially early in his congressional career as the history professor, member of Congress. And he, he, he packaged and sold with some significant influence. I think we have not yet begun to measure the influence of his American history yes. curriculum. But so, you know, on the one hand, you, on the one side you have that and the other side, you know, like generation ago you had zen maybe um and to be sure there's some truth in both of those accounts but there's no (laughs) it's it's a it's a it's a it's it's an impoverished political community when kids in some school districts are reading the ones kids like how can they even have a conversation that's they're not the same country i mean there's not there doesn't need to be a uniformity right like we would God forbid we lived in a nation state that said, here is the nation's history. Everyone must agree to it, right? Like that is that is a terrible injustice as well. Um, but the fact that, you know, history is a body of inquiry that relies on scholarship that is constantly churning and making new discoveries, that's the piece that is interesting as a matter of pedagogy, right? So crossing a divide is to say this is a book in which, you, you know, you will find just a, a very long litany of atrocities. And you will also find a tremendous amount of beauty and triumph and invention um, and, and generosity, uh, the kind of, you know, beacon of light that in, in, the, in the brightest of times the nation has understood itself to be and its best moral and most moral political actors um, have in fact been. Um, I, I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, but it is a less... Um, you know, it's a way less sexy thing mm-hmm. to be the book that mm-hmm. is like, well, you know, on the one hand, but also on the other hand, mm-hmm. um, that is a that is a despised form of moderation um, politically, right? Um, and I think there's increasingly very little place for that within right. academic life. Right. Right. Maybe you would disagree with that. I'd be curious to hear. No, I I actually I agree with that, and I think uh, like the rest of our society, um, it's much easier to label than it is to explain. And we do a lot of labeling as scholars also of in-groups and out-groups. And I don't think uh, that necessarily maps onto our politics, but oftentimes it does map onto our, our, our politics. I, I was struck in this book and in your scholarship as a whole, you, you were trained as a colonial early, early Americanist. I, I've, I, I see your work as a public intellectual, as someone who's trying not just to cross-devise, but to get us to think about 
how we can believe in the truths that you highlight here, equality, sovereignty, uh, democracy, but also be conscious of, uh, of slavery, be conscious of the exclusions in our society, the mistreatment of uh, Native peoples that you've written a lot uh, about. How do you see those things coming together? When you talk to audiences about our history, you, you revere Ben Franklin. You've written so much about him. There's a big section. Uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, but I hope people will read the book to read more about Ben Franklin. He's in here. Um, but then you also spend a lot of time on on slavery. How do you How do you explain those worlds together? Yeah, so, well, I don't need to be fussy, but I wouldn't say I revere Ben Franklin. I find him very funny, mostly because he's filthy. Like he's a, just he's the most filthy of the frame of of the framers. I find him an incredible companion on the page. And you make him fascinating to the reader. He, I will say, I I I, I, really, I I find him fascinating. But that's largely because I I wrote a biography of his sister Jane. Um, so I spent a lot of time with the Franklins many years ago, many many years with them. Um, I guess I would say, you know, the the the. The sort of grotesque version, and 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 Zachary, you're close enough to this age-wise that maybe you've encountered this. There is a kind of like middle school, middle grades U.S. history textbook that is like la da 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 da, and then this and then this, and, and then there's like a sidebar, and it's like and also slavery, right? Yes. Or like yes. and this is a sidebar, and like oh, Plains Indian Warfare. Now they're all you know, and then and then and, and you just kind of la da 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 da. Oh, the Industrial Revolution had some losers. They're losers though. La like it's a weird the the there's like the one narrative and then it doesn't even rise to the level of a subplot it's almost like a stagey aside like a whispered aside oh yes slavery you know and like as if and of course slavery is an economic system it is a political system it is an act of war it is many many things it is a social experience um it is a it is a series of a acts of repeated violence it is an inherited stuff. like there's a lot in the institution that requires examination and the way architecturally my book works um and the reason that uh i think the side the sidebar even if the sidebar is like if it's the inverse right if it's like Oh, this terrible, 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 terrible. Okay, but maybe there, you know, there was, you know, the Atlantic Charter had some good ideas in it. But terrible, 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 terrible. You know, like either way, it's a, it's a craziness because it's the, it's the, it's the waxing and the waning. It's the warp and the woof. Like those things. So the way my book works is to suggest following um, decades of really, really vital scholarship. I mean, back to Edmund Morgan, American Slavery, American Freedom, that. Slavery is not incidental to liberty. It is, in fact, the world's first modern democracy arises in the last bastion of chattel slavery because enslaving other human beings, fully depriving them of their liberty and indeed down to their lives for the sake of exerting wholly arbitrary power over other human beings— causes people to think differently about the nature of liberty and it's a brutal truth right it's 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 grotesque it is a horror to imagine that it is the fact of these virginia planters you know jefferson among them washington among them madison among them who come to hold liberty dear because they have so deprived right. other human beings of it but 
so you can't just do a sidebar there. Like the the one is a cause of the, of the other, and 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 yet it doesn't end right. Like it keeps rolling because the then the fact of that advocacy advocacy for liberty and the struggle for independence generates and strengthens and fuels and amplifies voices of abolitionism and makes possible emancipation ultimately. Right. Mm-hmm. But so you have you they they're constantly in intention with one another you can't it, it, it's just a very weird thing that there are history books out there that you know want to have the animating force like what causes change right just one thing like it can't be it when actually it's it's, it's a, it, there's just a lot going on right right exactly one of the things I think you were just acknowledging there is is sort of the the the, the vastness of American history the ways in which we have these these many, the many causes and the many, the many effects, and certainly American history can seem vast when we have it in a middle school textbook that's a, a thousand pages long. But how do we get uh, Americans to understand how small our history is in the span of the world, and and how do we how do we get Americans to understand that, that the United States is still a relatively new project, right? One that where creativity and and iteration is still, if not possible, uh, needed and and required. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful sentiment, and I wish I felt that it were within the realm of the possible at this moment. Right. I mean, I do, I do think that. Um, I mean, you might wonder to yourself: Did landing on the moon, which you think you would have thought could imbue humanity and Americans who funded, in fact, went on that voyage with a kind of newfound sense of awe and wonder at the smallness of us within the vastness of the universe. But it could go the other way too, right? There could be just this incredible, well, then of course there would be a celebration, in fact, was of the technological feat and and scientific advances that made that journey possible, um, that that could have a kind of icky triumphalism, a kind of um, we've now won the Cold War because we got first to the moon. Like there could be this kind of way in which the beauty and majesty of that act becomes diminished by the kind of seedy political maneuvering of it all, right? And it's gonna be it's gonna be both, right? So I mean, you could think that what that sense of um, humility and awe and wonder as against all of human history, you almost would expect that the daily number of climate catastrophes around the world would bring that home in a way. It gives us a sense of scale, right, of the scale of species on Earth, of the number of species on Earth, of our place among other species. Um, but I I don't see that happening, right? Like, I think the climate becomes another thing to win. Um, at the you know well that it's a matter of national security we should in fact now invest in climate you know the the language with which it's going to be cloaked is going to be one that comes very close to a kind of I think kind of ugly version of nationalism um, so I guess I love the idea behind your question but I don't think that can be found in history I think that is a matter of faith and the sacred and how we live our lives as humans. And I don't think there's a mandate from the past of any country or any people that can answer that. And in some ways, you could argue, looking at history, that seeking that in the history of a particular group will always lead only to bad things. You know, it's interesting you say that. I I, I read your book slightly differently, but of course, I was reading in it what I wanted to read, I guess. Uh, but uh, I was I was looking back through it on the plane last night as I was flying back to Austin. 
And um, what struck me is that, uh, in a sense, this is your most, I think, your most political of all your books. I'm a political historian. I usually don't think of you as a political historian. And here you are writing a wonderful political history. That's what I would call this political history of the United States. And um, you have at every moment from the founding forward, you have beauty and ugliness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, back to the American Revolution, you capture, I think, so well... The, the the world of, of Edmund Morgan and popular sovereignty, the invention of popular sovereignty. You capture that, right? You capture the the idealism. But I think you say at some point, right, it's two revolutions and one loses the revolution against slavery, even though slaves, you say, are leaving the plantation at this time. They're fleeing to the British side, right? Um, and, and I think throughout, and, and so I came away thinking, well, we shouldn't be surprised that today we have the, the beauty of, the largest peaceful movement uh, in our society for racial justice after the killing of George Floyd. More more people were protesting peacefully, more white people than ever before in our society. But at the same time, we see a resurgence of anti-Semitism, of racism, of all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, sort of, it sort of was a little comforting for me, maybe it shouldn't have been, that we're sort of in a cycle we've been, through, been in for a long time. You know, it's interesting. It's so interesting you say that because when the book came out, which was in 2018, I got... A really weird and revealing and quite common email from, you know, just every few days, every few weeks saying, I just finished your book and I just can't understand how you were able to write it so fast since Trump was elected and explain everything about how Trump came to power. You know, when I read Stephen Douglas saying, you know, our government was founded by white men for white men and their descendants for all for all of posterity. I, you know, I was amazed that you had been able to find that so quickly in order to explain to me the origins of, of, of Trumpism. And what? Like, is a thousand page book, lady. Like, I didn't write it <laughs> since 2016. Like, like, this is like lecture material I was giving in 1992. Right, you know right. what I mean? Like, it's a compilation of anything I've ever read or said. Yeah, it's cumulative, or, as all of our books written, are, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and... But I would also hear people in, 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 I would also, and I would sort of say when I go give talks and I would kind of tell this story, I'd say like when I started writing the book, when I laid it out an outline, I always planned to end, I figured the book would come out around 2019 and I always planned to end with Obama's inauguration uh, in 2009. It's a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful day. It's a lovely ending for a book about American history. Um, It was going to be a beautiful scene to set and it would be like, like, you know, the curtain closes and people are weeping on, on the mall. In the end. Like I, right. It's um, a fairy tale. And I knew that by the time the book came out, the election of 2016 was going to have happened. But like everybody else, it seemed like from the polls that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I didn't really care. Like I wasn't going to attack on a, a chapter about Hillary Clinton. I, like I had nothing to say about that. And you would not, you know, as a historian, really want to be commenting on the very recent past typically. So I was like, okay, that'll be comfortable. It'll book come out in 2019. It'll, be writing about an event. It'll end in 2009, at least be 10 years in the past comfortable. And then Trump was elected and I, and I had to sign a scramble. I realized like I needed to write an, an additional chapter that got to election day, 2016. which is the last thing in the world I wanted to do. Right. Try to explain like right. Trumpism when no one really still understands it analytically in a deep and meaningful way that can be persuasive to everybody. Um, and it's, it's a tough ending. It is a tough ending to end on election day. But that seemed to me clear it would be like a dereliction of professional duty not to include that. You know, the yeah. book would come out and people would be like, oh, 
she must just love Obama. She ended in 2009. Like, why'd she not cover Trump? And I'm like, that, that would be the thing, the only thing people would say about the book, like after all that work. Right, right. Um, the textbook edition is finally coming out oh. now, and it ends, guess where it ends, Zachary? I don't know, 2009? <laughs> no. no. Earlier? January 6th, 2021. Oh, it ends at the insurrection. Yeah. Yeah. That's where my new book starts, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it's been it. a happy, you know, like, yeah. it's a moment. It's the moment. It's, like, it's if a you, culmination if you, of You so know, much. carry it forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, that's where you have to go. It's really also a really tough ending. You, you have a wonderful paragraph in your epilogue uh, that I, I've read and reread many times. Um, it's near the very end. The truths on which, the truths on which the nation was founded, equality, sovereignty, and consent, which are sort of themes that run through the book, uh, those are these truths had been retold after the Civil War. Modern liberalism came out of that political settlement, and the United States abandoning isolationism had carried that vision to the world. This echoes themes we've covered in, in many of our podcasts. The rule of law, individual rights, democratic government, open borders, and free markets. The fight to make good on the promise of the nation's founding truths held the country together for a century during the long struggle for civil rights. And yet the nation came apart all the same, all over again. Is that still your diagnosis as a historian for where we are? Yeah. Yeah, man. It's only getting worse. Do you think it—I mean, it's worse. From 2016? Which I don't is know. probably why I wrote that. I don't know. Zachary, what do you think? Is our history getting worse? I, I don't know. Are we coming apart? Um, I don't think so. I think, we've, I think we've, we've probably been apart for a long time, <laughs> but— mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting. Uh, you you talk in there about um, the the power of uh, the United States as an ideal, if not a, a reality, um, or or as a a journey, <laughs> if not a a, a um, an, an actually attainable um, goal. Um, I wonder is is there an argument to be made that 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 maybe our our, our founding was a different moment? Uh, maybe it was maybe it was uh, simply uh, unique to the uh, a sort of unique historical moment that that didn't necessarily have the philosophical or the um, uh, or the uh, governmental uh, impact worldwide that we maybe project onto it uh, today from the lens of 2022. I'm thinking particularly. I think one of your um, colleagues in the New Yorker, Adam Gopnik, uh, wrote a piece a few years ago. I think it was 2017 about uh, sort of comparing actually the Canadian system to the United States. And, uh, and and sort of asking if you compare the um, the the um, the sort of multi the ideal of a of a multiracial or at least um, uh, popular sovereignty uh, based government in Canada and the United States maybe the um, Canadian system actually better embodies those ideas. I don't know. That may have been three questions in one. I, yeah, I apologize. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know I can buy that. I can be persuaded of that. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that. Founding a country on the idea of natural rights and the consent of the governed is an extraordinary mm -hmm. act in human history. And when commentators at the time, you know, said there's, you know, there was the, the creation of the earth and there was when Christ came to earth. And, you know, then there was the discovery of the Americas by Europeans. And then there was the founding of the world's first modern, what became the world's first modern. Like that these are the uh, main events. Like that's the epic chroniclers of the 19th century and and their self-satisfied um celebrations but 
so I would nowhere go that far, and I would that would not be my list about the signal events in the history of humankind. But it is a huge event. That d- does it mean that uh, does it does it follow that the experiment conducted here is the one that has gone the best? Absolutely not. You know that just doesn't follow. And there are really great comparisons. I, a scholar I I really admire immensely, Jamal Green, who teaches at Columbia Law School. He once did this sort of interesting U.S.-Canadian comparison, which was he was really interested in why Americans were so easily persuaded by the jurisprudence of originalism, the idea that that there is a kind of original meaning to the Constitution and we need to be faithful to it. It's like, that's such a weird idea. Um, So he looked at other former British colonies that have written constitutions. So he compared the U.S., Canada, Australia, yeah, mainly them. And did like looked at all these different indices, like, I don't know, income inequality, literacy rates, like what what could maybe account for this real difference? And it it was this the percentage of the population that were that was evangelical Protestants. That 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 form of fundamentalism, a fundamentalist reading of a text as scripture, yeah. is really is just very widely diffused in our culture. Even among those of us who are not evangelical Protestants, we live in a world of evangelical Protestantism, and so it seems it seems just very natural. It was kind of like an easy sell to convince Americans which really only happened since the 1970s, that, that the Constitution needs to needs to work that way. And Canada doesn't have that, right? And when you don't have this burden on your back carrying this incredible weight of this unamendable, you know, unchangeable Constitution where, we, you know, we have this weird deformity with the Supreme Court, you have, you have a capacity for kind of a pluralist politics, uh, a kind of harmonious politics sure. that we just, we just completely lack. Sure, we have a priesthood. That yeah. restricts that. They yeah. just wear black robes of a different kind. So, uh, final question, Jill. It's the question we, we ask every week uh, to our various wonderful guests. Uh, what should we take away for the, from this, especially our young listeners, on, on how history can help them navigate our democratic future? Assuming that we all believe, uh, you point out in the book, not everyone has always believed this, but I think we all believe, at least rhetorically, in democracy. Uh, and I think you and I in particular and Zachary, because we all love history and we've devoted ourselves to it, we believe that history somehow enriches our understanding of democracy. What would you hope that your young readers and listeners are taking from your work to help them enrich their democratic story? Yeah, well, I, I, I would hope that people could think of history as an ocean where instead of, you know, dropping in a line and trying to catch the fish that supports the view you already have and throwing all the other fish back in that you can just go sail. And explore that it is it is a world open to discovery. Um, there will be serious storms out there. There will be beautiful sunrises out there. There will be buffeting winds and there will be gentle winds. But it is not there to justify your position in the world. It is it is actually people lived and died and they suffered, and they endured and they are gone. And you can honor them best by appreciating the complexity of their lives and not using them as as political tools. Hmm. Zachary, what do you think? I think that's very powerful. I, I think maybe that's what we need as a country right now is is an acknowledgement uh, that, that we are all shaped by things uh, as a society and, and, and collectively uh, that, that we didn't choose uh, that 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 we had no say in, um, but that continued to define our lives, and and maybe that that is the humility we need, and and that's the humility mm-hmm. we're missing. Mm-hmm. And I love the metaphor of sailing at sea; it's an adventure, and and the winds are taking you in directions you don't expect. I I think of your your writing in that way. I mean, what's so beautiful about your writing, Jill, is 
you go from Wonder Woman to Ben Franklin's uh, sister to um, John Winthrop, who's in here. Uh, you, you cover so much territory following, as you say, the, the different winds of the evidence and the stories. And, and I think there's a lot we can take from it. There's a, there's a humility and, and an appreciation, I think, of, of those around us. Um, that doesn't make you optimistic, Jill? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I don't have a lot of optimism <laughs> to offer. But I, t- I just would just to say, be a seagull. Be a seagull. Well, this has been a fascinating and wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Thanks Jill. Both. Zachary, thank you for your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us uh, for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.